The Secrets of Star Wars is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Secrets of Star Wars podcast. May the Force be with you always. You're listening to the Secrets of Star Wars, episode 152. Hello there. It's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Impressive. Every word in that sense was wrong. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. That's not how the Force works. Force is with me, and I am with the Force, and I fear nothing. Remember... The Force will be with you, always. Hey everyone, I'm Angela Ciolana, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, where we talk about everything connected to that galaxy far, far away. From movies to books to TV shows and more, we're looking at the deeper themes and meanings found in Star Wars, and the other fun stuff, too. So today we are diving into The Mandalorian Season 3, Chapter, uh, excuse me, Episode 2, entitled Chapter 18, the Minds of Mandalore. And joining me today are Jason Yuji. Hey, Jason. Hi, how are you guys? Very well. And we also have Catherine Laffrey. Hi, Catherine. Hello. And we have our very own Mudhorn, Andrew Hermes. <laughs> hey, Andrew. Hello, good to be back. Yeah, good to have you. All right, so we have uh, like a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, and usually we summarize uh, the episode um, I'm going to just kind of skip that because I feel like we've all seen it and we have so much to t- discuss. Um, so we'll just get right into it. Um, let's hear what you guys all thought of this episode and we'll just keep it to first impressions for now. So, um, Jason, we'll start with you. What was your first impression of this episode? When I saw the title, I was just like, man, are we going there that fast? And <laughs> yep, we went there that fast. So I was, it was sort of a shock moment. Yeah. Catherine, what about you? Oh, I was wowed and happy to be splunking. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great episode. And, and one that I think, uh, like Jason mentioned, like we're getting right into the, into the story, into the main, I guess, uh, plot line, at least early on this season. Um, and I think uh, like a lot of reviews and tweets I read, like this, this should have been like probably attached to the first episode. Um, uh, cause it, it was a, it was like a great follow up to that first episode and then really, um, you know, it paid off, you know, a lot of the things that were presented in that first episode where it initially that first episode felt like another okay, we're just establishing, you know, some ply. This is, there's some side missions, but no, episode two, we're, we're, we're right in it. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was a spectacular episode. And then, you know, maybe one of my favorites, uh, in, in the series as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I had fun with it too. Um, there's some things about this that really hit home for me. And, um, and then I got to say that at the end, probably, uh, for like a good minute, my mouth was just like, I could not close my mouth. Like I was wide open <laughs> at the very end. Um, so yes, we will talk about all that good stuff. Um, 
Let's start at the very beginning when we have Din arriving at Peli Mato's garage. Good old Peli, our friend. Um, and it's on Boon to Eve. So lots of things happening. Um, and our expectations are changing already um, when they have their, their talk and we get R5D4, <laughs> who is a legacy character from the original Star Wars film. If uh, anyone listening is not aware, um, I was wondering if any of you all have read the short story called The Red One that's in the book from a certain point of view about R5. I haven't. No? Okay, yeah. so so in that short story, because I that's like the one from a certain point of view that I do have, um, it is actually revealed that... So just to refresh people's memories, when we first saw R5, um, it's when... Uncle Owen needs to buy some droids, right? And so we see him and Luke and they're working together and the Jawas are trying to sell their their wares. And um, and we see R2 wanting to get sold, right? And so he's making a stink, basically. So in the short story, it actually reveals that um, R2, when he's beeping and blooping, he is insisting that he needs to get sold in order to save the galaxy. And so... The story says that R5 intentionally blows his motivator as a self-sacrifice. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if that's technically canon because here he seemed like a, an immense coward. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but what was you all's favorite thing about this scene? What did you like and what did you notice about this scene at, at the garage? I'm just surprised that... Din got the the ship. Of course, he had basically had to build it himself, the N1, because we're seeing the dark side of Peli. You know, she's she's a scam <laughs> artist. I mean, we could kind of see that before, but now it's just right there. It's proof. And the way she was able to sell that droid and get him off the trail of uh, IG-11 was pretty shocking, I thought. Catherine, what about you? she's been hanging around with her Jawa boyfriend too much because she's out there <laughs> chop shopping speeders. And <laughs> it was funny. I mean, I, her missing tooth, I got to hear the story. There's got to be a great story behind why she's missing, missing a tooth. Someone popped her in the face, I'm sure. But uh, just seeing her as like Auntie Pelly to Grogu is just adorable. They have just the cutest relationship. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I love, I love how... I love the relationship that she has with Grogu and um it's just nice seeing seeing her pop up again as she's always like a like a splendid sight and it's always uh, you know it's going to be funny you know it's they're going to have like uh you know a cool interaction um and uh yeah I, I like I sort of like the whole you know like okay we're just going to let's forget about the IG droid and <laughs> getting that fixed. <laughs> Cause I, I, I was worried again, I was worried like, Oh, are we going to spend too much time on this? Is this, is episode two just going to, are we just going to like, all right, how are we going to find this, you know, this chip that we need for, uh, for the IG droid. So I'm glad that, um, they, they didn't waste any time. And, and, uh, I thought that, uh, uh, this, you know, this droid, the, what was it? The R5 D4. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I thought the, played a way way more funny and and uh uh i guess 
you know, as we see later in the episode, it serves serves a great purpose. Um, so yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a fun way to to start the episode. And we after that we join Grogu and Mando um, on the way to Mandalore already, um, and of course R fives with them. But we see how Din speaks to Grogu like a father, and um, of course we've seen that in other contexts. But I think this was especially, I guess, um, intentionally so. Um, and, you know, feel free to kind of jump around the timeline of the episode as we are discussing this topic or any topic. But um, I'd like to actually go to Andrew first with this one. I know all of y'all have kids, but um, Andrew, uh, I don't know if you were struck uh, as a dad. Um, by that by that little moment but then also just overall in this episode like about Grogu and Din's relationship and kind of how it's developed over these I guess couple of years or so yeah I mean for me Din is Din is dad I mean he's daddy and, and Grogu's uh you know the child uh and that's that's something that uh you know was established from the beginning of the series like the before we knew Grogu's name, it was referred to a lot as other than Baby Yoda as the child, and um, yeah, we're seeing this pay off in a big way. I think after the the story arc in Boba Fett, where we see how Grogu comes back to Din, you know, after that, it was just like if there was if there was any sort of like doubt that um, they weren't going to come back together or that their relationship was going to you know, naturally grow apart if he, if Grogu was going to be gone for a long uh, amount of time, uh, that was like put to rest. And we saw the embrace that Din had with Grogu, uh, when they reunited and when things kicked off, uh, in, in episode one of this season, you know, we, again, the interactions that they have, it's, it's, it's just evolved naturally into this, um, you know, father son sort of relationship. And, uh, it's, it doesn't get, uh, doesn't get old. It doesn't get any less adorable. It doesn't, it's not cringy. Uh, it, it's, it's really, I think earned. And I think the series, uh, has done a good job of, um, you know, cause yeah, I think it could, they could have easily, uh, messed that up. I think, I, I think the series has done a good job of them, uh, allowing their relationship to, to get to this point. Cause it's hard. So it could be hard to imagine someone like Din, who's so like, uh, matter of fact and, and doesn't have any real relationships uh, in his life um, and is like obviously this weird kind of culty sort of figure <laughs> but when you see when he's around Grogu like he kind of like uh, no no pun intended his armor just falls off and uh, he's he, we, we see like who he really is um, uh, intimately and uh, it's it's only really in those moments that, that we see that side of Din after watching this episode, I had to go back and watch The Rescue. And I was so glad I did because, like you said, Andrew, his armor falls off, literally, when he's with Grogu. And right before he takes his helmet off, he says, I'll see you again, I promise. And then that's when we get the face-to-face -face moment. And it's so fascinating because Din's last memory of his actual father is his last face-to-face -face moment with a father figure. After that, 
everyone else has had a helmet on in his life. So it's no wonder he has no attachments to anyone. And now, you know, he takes his helmet off for Grogu and you get that deep face-to-face. It made me think about in the Bible, all those references of face-to-face with God, God the Father in that face-to-face moment. And then to know that this has been proven out that of all mammals, only human males can visually recognize their offspring. No other mammal on earth can the male, the father, recognize his offspring except for humans. And so I thought that was really just kind of neat just to get that that strong face-to-face moment. Of course, he's going to take his helmet off for Grogu because he wants that bond. He wants to stay close to him. So it was neat to see it all come back around, and now he is just being full-on dad with him. That's awesome. Uh, Jason, I know you have older kids, and I was wondering if you kind of saw yourself and how Din was kind of like showing Grogu the ropes of how the the ship worked and everything. (laughs) Yeah, uh, recently we got to remodel a house, and uh, I actually employed my kids. They, you know, they were teenagers, and they had their little jobs around town, and my oldest daughter, she actually quit her job at the grocery store and came to work for me. And at other times, I really didn't give the other two a choice. I said, you're all coming over here and you're going to work for me today. Uh, So we got to do that together. And we all figured it out together because, you know, YouTube knows lots of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but it was, there were certain things, you know, it was my house and I wanted it done a certain way. So, you know, the way he was teaching him, how to navigate and how to, he got to show him his, you know, essentially his hometown, right? You know, when he was, I grew up right over there and on Concordia. And, you know, I've done that with my kids when we go to visit my hometown, you know, this is, this is where I grew up and this is where I went to school and stuff like that. So I saw a lot of parallels there. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, And it's, when you think about just the episode, as an entirety, um, it's really cool how Bo-Katan just acknowledges Grogu as Din's kid. You know, I think she says like your kid or something like that. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's finally gotten to that point. And, and that feels, I think, very satisfying as you were saying, Andrew. Um, so, so here we are, we reach the surface of Mandalore. And we see how it is covered in this glass that um, kind of reminded me of Superman's Fortress of Solitude, um, or even because it's green, like the Emerald City from The Wizard of Oz. So yeah. I was <laughs> sort of wondering if y'all had any other thoughts as far as like connections, or I don't know, even if there's symbolism to that, possibly, or what that might signify sort of in the story if y'all have any do you have any thoughts on that i thought it was interesting how you know they have to all you see from from space is the storms and and everything and then you you know they're flying through the storms so you think it's going to be like that all the way down sort of like uh the matrix you know uh where everything's all clouded over and ruined but then they come out of the storm and everything's clear and shiny. I mean, it's all destroyed, but at least there's there's a calm. I had a totally different take on this one. Um, being in art, and I had 
um, my godfather was a stained glass artist. And so right away I'm going, what makes glass that color green? And first thing I came across was um, depression glass. And depression glass has uranium in it. And it actually will glow under blue light. It's still slightly radioactive. And knowing that the planet was covered in sand right before it was um, fusion bombed, it makes sense that you would have this green colored glass that clear. Um, oh my gosh, came across some crazy deep dive stuff that I'm just going to have to hand off to Jimmy Aiken Mysterious World because <laughs> there was some crazy stuff about sheets of glass across different deserts and places around the world that they say happened long ago, but the area is so large that it would have had to have been from multiple asteroids exploding just above the surface at the right time to create these sheets of glass like this in the sand. And they even came across someone saying that there was at one point in time a natural uh, uranium reactor in a region in um, like mid-African area that just was mm -hmm. like, they said, probably burning for thousands of years and just huge chunks of this greenish yellow and green glass are all over the place. Some even wonder if there wasn't, you know, some crazy explosion back in prehistoric civilization that was really advanced, but it's just fun to read about all that stuff. Wow. <laughs> And I guess it's the, basically the same color as uh, any place where the U.S. did testing out in New Mexico and places, the glass fusion of the sand and stuff. Yeah, I have absolutely nothing to add to that. That's, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just noticed it was green. <laughs> and the, the, the caves were green. It was glowy, glo glowy green caves. And once we got in the caves, yeah, that's all I they noticed. They actually used the same name of, uh, is it Trinitite? The glass that was formed in New Mexico after the nuclear blast, they use the same name for the crystals mm. on Mandalore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. We'll hand that over to Jimmy Aiken. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, I know you listen because you sent his feedback. Naturally. Uh, and so, yeah. So, okay. Whatever it means, we're here. We're in this glassed over planet. Um and uh, of course, you know, we we have some issues, right? We have some problems and we come across these um, former wasteland dwellers, the Alamites. Uh, definitely to me, it looked like guys in suits. <laughs> um, but uh, I was wondering if these reminded you of like creatures from any other story i think i heard someone say like journey to the center of the earth um was something that kind of came up for people i don't know if if you all had any thoughts as you saw these guys kind of popping up all over the place they looked like the morlocks from time machine mm, yeah i could see that yeah i feel like there's been a sci-fi creature like this in almost every genre out there the only thing that was crazy was seeing their tusk so he's like oh is there some relation there to the uh mythosaur <laughs> right yeah that's right yeah I, I just i just thought like it, it was sort of like oh well since the planet has been dissipated if, if these are the only like living 
I guess, two-legged <laughs> creatures on the planet. Uh, it's it's like evolution going backwards or starting over again. Um, uh, you know, that that's just the way I thought about it. Like, you think about Mandalore being like this sort of sweeping, you know, glorious uh, city that where obviously technology was probably booming and, and, and all that. And, and then you just see like the, the, the only surviving people on the, on the planet are like these literal cavemen. Uh, so I thought that was, uh, sort of interesting. Um, and I guess they, I think, I mean, and we see clearly like you, even though they're, you know, the only people on the planet, it seems like there are other animals and creatures that, uh, can, definitely outsmart them yeah but Bo-Katan later mentioned that they used to live on the you know essentially in the outskirts and where people weren't because they were afraid of the people and now it seems like they're not they're well they need they need to eat and there's there's nobody <laughs> there <laughs> there's nothing else there so they're gonna get what they what they can but <laughs> yeah yeah um and then we have this amazing creepy spider vampire lizard droid creature trap thing <laughs> um that how many people jumped i did <laughs> that was so, so creepy smart. did he use did that creature use the helmet as bait yeah I oh yeah so. definitely yeah. yeah yeah has anyone read oh my god a new a new dawn it's about um uh, Kane and Jarrus and right and Hera how they meet because there's a character in there that this guy could be what's left mm. over from him this Count Vidian or Vidian and uh, he was a man who got rich taking over mining operations got sick and to keep himself alive just kept adding more and more cyborg attachments to himself they say he was probably less human than cyborg anymore but just the way that he acted and was so vicious and if someone got in his way he would take him down seeing that one eye and half a brain left staring around <laughs> I was like Oh my gosh, it could so be him down in the mines trying to eke out his last little bit of existence to stay alive forever, vampiring off of anyone who can get. It's just like, oh, he just gave me the creeps. <laughs> so that's my theory who that is. <laughs> yeah, I immediately looked that creature up. Like, is this like canon somewhere? And then, and, and yeah, like on Wikipedia, it was like unidentified arachnid. <laughs> you know, Android or something like that, a creature. So like, Oh, okay. Well, I noticed a connection to hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, there's a character in there that has all these legs and one of the legs in, in on that character kind of drags behind. And when that, when this creature, his head comes off and he's dragging himself. Those two little back legs are just sort of dragging. I was like, that's, that's the guy on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. A serious upgrade of Grievous. <laughs> uh, it was fantastic how they created it. I mean, I'm curious if it was entirely CG or if it was some parts practical. Um, but it just looked amazing. And I like your theory, Catherine. I think even if it isn't supposed to be that 
character specifically, I'm sure it was at least inspired by him. So that's neat. Um, I thought it was interesting that it seemed, I mean, I don't know if you, you all had the same impression, but it seemed like that creature or thing or person or whatever was getting Din's blood from him. Is that what you thought too? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Um, because, um, as I was watching, I was like, well, this whole series we've been thinking about and reflecting on how Din is not Mandalorian by blood and, um, and neither is Grogu, of course. And Grogu is also not Din's blood son. Um, so there isn't a blood connection between them or with this particular place but somehow like the his blood kind of being extracted um it almost reminded me that in some ways din is more or wants to be mandalorian in some ways more than bo almost seems like she wants to um so i don't know if you all what you think of of my weird reflection there (laughs) i'm actually still trying to figure out one thing about the mandalorians because i was watching and one commentator mentioned that mandalore was populated by humans who went there they're not originally from there and that those crazy creatures we saw in the cave were actually the native inhabitants of the planet and so it's like okay so it helped to make sense of the Mandalorian foundlings not necessarily being like residents of Mandalore or the area of space that's the Mandalorian space because they have several different planets but still it's just like so wait they're all just like a gathering of people under the creed is that all it is or is there some mm. you know feel of like hey i'm from the home world <laughs> so to speak well i mean it sounds similar to christianity you know anybody can be a christian if you accept the creed right you know accept baptism accept creed and we're seeing a lot of those themes you yeah. know with the mandalorians you know there was a lot of talk last week about what was she going to do with that bowl of water? Right. We never got to officially see that, but it it's very, looked very symbolic of baptism and anybody that's baptized and, you know, later on says the creed at mass, you know, they're, they're Catholic, they're Christian. So, uh, yeah. that's, and that's where I feel the, the title of last week's episode, the apostate, it, it really made me think, well, why is he the apostate? Because he wants to be redeemed. He wants to be part of that, that culture. Whereas Bo-Katan looks like she just, she just doesn't care. But we have to remember there's so many different factions of the culture. We don't even know what, we don't even know if the watch is really the pure Mandalorian culture. They could be just a cult of people that have gone off the deep end. Just like in Christianity, you can go, you know, vice or scruples and 
you know, you right. got to find that balance. So yeah. I'm also Virtues wondering in like, the middle, yeah. yeah, what's, what's the balance with what a true Mandalorian is? Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, we'll get to the end of what happens at the end of the episode, but I think the end of the episode really, it confuses that more because, you know, you hear Bo-Katan's uh, side of it and, and what her beliefs are and you have Din's and, and then by the end of it, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Well, you know, maybe, you know, I, I guess most people would, would kind of lean towards Bo-Katan's sort of, uh, you know, theories and, and, and beliefs uh, on, on what a Mandalorian is and, 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 and her coming to the reality, like the, like, oh yeah, she's reasonable. She logically, she's like, oh yeah, Mandalore is, it's over. It's uh, no one's there. There's nothing to rule. There's, there's no, uh, there's no creed that's, that's gonna, uh, that we adhere to that's gonna change anything. And it, it, all, all it's ever done is divided people. Um, but you know, by the end of it, everything has turned on its head. So now, now it's like, okay, what, what are we supposed to believe? Like, <laughs> is there something to, uh, is there something more to uh, Din's faction uh, and the Watch and and what they believe? And and like you said, it's probably it's probably somewhere in between. But um, you know, we'll learn more obviously as we uh, as we go along. Yeah. Well, speaking of Bo-Katan, um, so because of this vampire spider, whatever we want to call it, um, Grogu has to apply his Boy Scout skills <laughs> and get in his hover stroller and get back to the ship and, and recruit Bo-Katan. And he, he does. Um, I really liked that. It was kind of like a Jedi who motivated Bo to return to Mandalore. Um, but what, what were your thoughts as we revisited Bo in her castle um, and kind of just where she is at this point? Um, and I know Jason, you had some thoughts on on Bo being there. Yeah, I mean, every time the N one shows up in in her space, there she's sitting on that throne, just sulking. It makes me wonder: Does she not have anything else to do? I mean, is she really that downtrodden that that's all she can think about all day, or is it just a coincidence that she's sitting on that throne when he shows up? Must be a comfy Fish. chair. Uh, I was thinking the <laughs> same thing. Like, like she, I know. Is she just always there? Like, what? <laughs> You're yeah, right. That's is what it I was like, it's a long hallway. It's a big building. You know, and she's ready to fight him off. It, it, it almost seemed like if Din was in that pot or in, in the co- cockpit of that fighter, would she have challenged him? You know, could that have been an opportunity to challenge him for the for the dark saber. She, she looked kind of mad until she sees just Grogu pop up and she's like her whole demeanor switch. Like, uh Oh, what's wrong? We got to go find them. Let's, let's go help. Are you ready for my crazy take on this one? <laughs> well, first of all, it. she's sitting, she's yes. sitting there like someone who's lost their job, but still wants to maintain like they're still doing their job. She's by herself doing that, but she's also very depressed and very alone and when Din first showed up, as he's walking away, she whispers, goodbye, Din Djarin. It was very much like a smited lover. She wants him to pursue her. It, was, it just felt like that. And then when the droid tells her, oh, look, he's back, and she's like, okay, that's it. 
you know, and she's like, she said the classic line of, I want to be left alone. And as a mother of three daughters and being a woman myself who has said that line many times when I don't want to be left alone, <laughs> it, it did seem like she did not want to be left alone at that point. <laughs> she needed him to help her as much as he needs her to help him. <laughs> And I'm a sick so romantic, you, so what can so I say? So you're shipping them. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we are shipping them, hundred um, uh, percent. Yeah, you could, you could, you could feel it. Uh, I feel the connection and the tension. But I, I, yeah, I, you know, she, she, I think you put it. You know, you made the you made the point where like she doesn't know what she's supposed to do. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, externally, she's like saying all this stuff. Like, oh, it's it's over. There's nothing to rule anymore uh you know she 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 felt defeated like the first time you know where she where it was revealed like oh she's you know supposed to win the dark saber in a battle and you know she was she wasn't gonna just fight you know uh din i mean din wasn't even willing to fight obviously and then i mean just a second before that he would just want to give it to her um so it I think all that piled on and, and then obviously we'll learn more, I guess, not only on this show, I'm sure on Ahsoka when, when more characters <laughs> come into play that uh, Bo's connected to. Um, but yeah, I mean, someone, a character like her and, and we know the lore, I mean, the, from from the animated series, like we know that uh, she's not one to just lay around and, uh, you know, I think she just, that opportunity to save Din, obviously part of it was you know, there's, uh, you know, there, there is some sort of like care that she has for him, you know, uh, how, how deep that, that goes, you know, we'll see. But, uh, I, I think a big part of it too, is this like, okay, well he actually went there. Let's go see what's going on. You know, I, I, I want to go on this, uh, this little adventure. Um, so yeah, I, I and, and, and we see she's in fine form. Uh, she hasn't lost any, a step. I mean, she, she, I mean, she, she like plowed through those uh, alamites like butter and uh, and and used the dark saber like a master. Um, uh, way better than Din. <laughs> way better. I mean, she's yeah. I mean, is that her first time wielding it? Obviously. Um, so it, it it was it was obviously amazing. It's cool to see a Bogotan centered episode. I mean, this was. Uh, I think Katie Sackhoff's finest performance uh, as Bo-Katan and uh, it was cool to see her shine and, and, and I'm excited to see, uh, see her be a big part of the season. I'm so interested to hear everybody's takes on um, on her performance, on Katie Sackhoff's performance here because I did not pick up any romantic vibes whatsoever and I hope they never get together. <laughs> That's my personal opinion. Oh, that, but, those are all in my head. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there it was anything happen. romantic. I don't think there was anything romantic either. I just I just it's sort of like I want them to be together. But <laughs> yeah. Hey, Din did say one thing every woman wants to hear, and he says Bo-Katan was right. It's like yes. <laughs> that is That's a good true. point. I'll give you that. Um, no, but I I saw her as you know, and taking the whole context of the episode in um I saw her as exhausted um 
by the wars and the failures and um, sort of like a person who has been through the ringer. And I also saw her as a skeptic um, in terms of Mandalore's ways, um, the mythology and the creed and the faith that that Din's coming in with. Um, and I thought it's interesting that you know, we've always, as you said, Andrew, we've always seen her as like this person of action. And, um, and here she is kind of just sitting in this castle and she's constantly making these remarks throughout the episode of, well, this isn't how things always used to be, or the things didn't always used to look like this, or things were different back then. And just talking about the past a lot. And, um, I suspect maybe, I don't know if Father Fett's listening to this, but um, he I know he's a hardcore Bo-Katan fan. And I was wondering how he felt about that, about this kind of turn in her, her character arc um, and her attitude here. Um, do you guys think that her character development up to this point has felt natural? Did you feel like where she is at this point is forced? Or um, did you find it upsetting or do you just think, no, it makes sense. And, and I can kind of see where she's coming from. I think she seems, you know, from her, within her lifetime, you know, we know that as, you know, Clone Wars, uh, Rebels area era, and now the Mandoverse in her lifetime, she's, she's, she's never really gotten there right she's she's almost had it every time and something's wrong go something goes wrong like having the dark saver given to her and then losing all of mandalore you know so she's i think she when you say she's skeptic she's cynical about that time period but everything before that all of the ancient stuff she see she was very sarcastic like when she was reading the that plaque on the Mm-hmm. near the living water she was very sarcastic about it like you know this is all silliness right and and i think that maybe a little bit of that stems from her from because of the past of her lifetime and she's like none of it makes sense anymore that's mm. interesting when you look at her past well first of all she's second fiddle to her sister who gets to take over the the throne um she was bitter enough about something between her and her sister that she went and joined Death Watch, who eventually was instrumental in her sister's death. So she's got a lot of heartbreak there. In this episode, watching her and Din walk through what was once a hall covered with incredible artwork. And now it's just broken down, exploded, gray nothing there no color none of the joy that was in that section and now she's trying to find herself she is like someone who probably once believed or wanted to believe but never could get there and now she's lost and wants to be found and I think that's kind of what happened for me watching her through this one episode brought her whole arc into one motion of wanting to be found. She really wants to know the truth and seeing her read the plaque, 
um, reminded me of a lot of times I have taken people, Catholic, Christian, or other, into beautiful, large and small Catholic churches, talk about the art and show them what's there and what it means. And it amazes me how some people just want the tour and how other people will see the someone that all of this points to. I feel like by the end of this episode, she started seeing that it points to something more than what she believed as a child. Yeah, I think, you know, um, Angela, to answer your question, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's, it was, it made a lot of sense where her character is at. Um, again, like, like everyone's pointed out, I mean, everything that she's went through, uh, it is that exhaustion and it is that sort of just defeatedness and like losing, you know, everyone she's been close to, you know, whether it was to the war, whether, whether it was just through, uh, obviously her, her sister died. I mean, it, it, she's just seen so much, uh, I mean, she's had a lot of highs and then, you know, she's only been experiencing lows, uh, for the most part. And I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, the, the way season two ended and, you know, even though she was a part of, uh, um, you know, a, a victory at the end there, I mean, she, in the end felt defeated that, um, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't wield a dark saber. And then that, that led to like, well, you know, even if she were to get it, like, what is she going to rule? What is there? Le- what's left? Um, you know, who's going to even follow her? She doesn't, like, she, she doesn't have like a, a, you know, a following or, or a, an army of, of Mandalorians that will, that will support her. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, Fighting her in this position, and then again getting this opportunity where Grogu comes and uh, you know asks her to to save Din. It's it's you know it's like in Christianity. It's it's it where the, where it says like it's not good that man should be alone. And then um, uh, we see her, you know, right away. She has a mission. She has a purpose. We see her in her in her glory. You know, <laughs> she's using her skills to. To, to save someone um and uh she uh she's right away back to her uh, her 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 old self um and uh and yeah it was it was it was cool to see that sort of transformation happen happen quickly cuz i think if we if we kept seeing bogatan if she just sort of like was this sort of figure that that was like hiding in her castle for for most of the season i think that that co- that might have been kind of lame or out of character. Um, so I'm glad that we're, we're hitting the ball running here with, with her character and, and seeing her uh, to her full, full potential. True, definitely. And I think a lot of people could probably relate to seeing her in that state because, um, you know, imposter syndrome is definitely real. I mean, once you um, get to a place where you feel like I am a failure and nothing works out and I'm totally incompetent, um, it's very easy to get depressed. And I don't know if that was what she was. Um, but in terms of her sarcasm and, um, towards the, the mythology and the legend and the almost religious aspects, you know, of, of her people, um, I thought that was, it, it made for really cool interactions between her and Din 
um, because it was almost like a cradle Catholic versus a convert. <laughs> it's like Din was the convert who came in and he sees everything and he appreciates everything with these new eyes. Where for Bo, it was like, oh, yeah, I know where the living waters are. It's like, you know, I used to go there all the time and it's no big deal. And once you see it, you know, it's it's really nothing. Um and not to say that every cradle Catholic is <laughs> like that. I'm a cradle Catholic. Um, I was like that for a long time. But yeah, but it's uh, easy to get like that, right? Because mm-hmm. you take things for granted. One other interesting thing in the relationship with Bo-Katan and Din in this, she has rescued him twice from being trapped in a cage that he allowed himself to fall into. So on the ship... When he went off with those guys, I said, oh, yeah, we'll take you to people of your kind. And he ends up under the grate on the ship and she rescues him from that. And then here he is again, trapped in a cage that he fell into himself. And so she's rescued him twice from a cage. So it makes you think it's like, I think they'll be rescuing each other where he'll help her see more, which she did already. And then she'll help him to break out of the small cage of tunnel vision. This is all I know. This is how it has to be. Cause she's already done that just little by little with him. Yeah. They're a good pair for sure. Um, and something that um, I, that really stuck out at me and I think it was very intentional on the part of the writers was this quote where she says, what pains me is seeing our own kind fight one another time and time again, killing each other for reasons too confusing to explain. It made us weak. We had no hope to resist being smashed. And um, and to me, that reminded me of what's happening like here and now in, in our society um, where there's this intense tribalism and these squabbles about, you know, identity and who's in the group and who's acceptable within the group and who's not acceptable and who should be kicked out. Um, and whether that's politics or religion or even, you know, a whole lot of other um, aspects of human life um, these days, I think that was probably meant to sort of, you know, remind us of <laughs> where we are with, with those kind of situations that a lot of infighting and extreme tribalism can really damage humanity. Um, and so Bo-Katan is, is sort of almost like, you know, in a way for us sort of like prophesying, um, this could happen, you know, look at what could happen if this continues in a way. So, um, that's, that's something that I took away from, from that interaction as well. So, um, they're going on this, pilgrimage or she's kind of his guide as they're going into the mines. And um, I think that, you know, as we see again, she's talking about the rituals they felt performatory when she would do them. It was like an empty show. You know, she's reading the plaque, like you said, you know, very scoffingly. Um, We also see her watching Din go into those waters as he is professing the Mandalorian creed. Um, and I don't know if you all had any thoughts about 
that moment of when he is, you know, just, I mean, it's really kind of like a, a baptism situation where, or a ritual bathing situation. Um, and just how she was reacting. I could, I didn't really know how to read her face. And I was wondering how you all, um, read that, that moment. I definitely read her face as saying, or, well, she was, as she was watching him, she was saying, she was thinking, this guy gets it. This guy wants to be Mandalorian. This guy, whether he was born that way or not, whether he's following the right, you know, whether his group is a cult or not, he truly believes this. And I could see in her face, I'm missing something that he has. I want what he has. That's what no. I saw in her face. No, 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 no. Yeah, there was sort of like in, in that in that moment um, that where she's telling that story about her, her father and, and the sacrifice that, that he made and dying in the war. Um, and Din's response to that was, this is the way, you know, honoring her father. And, and you could tell, you know, with her performance and, and on her face that she really was, uh, she really respected that and, and uh, was sort of struck by that. Um, and, and she had this sort of newfound respect for Din. And, um, and again, I think you made, you made a good point. Maybe there's, there's, she realized like maybe there's something that, that she is missing or, or something in him that, um, she didn't notice until now. Uh, and, uh, it definitely got her, uh, put her in a place to where she was not seeing what Din was doing as as much of a charade as, as she thought it was. Um, and then obviously by the end with the mythosaur, you know, everything just sort of, uh, turns around for her. Uh, and we didn't even need to see her face. We could tell by her expression with the helmet on. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, she obviously went into this initially thinking like, okay, let's just get on with the show. But I think it all turned right there after, uh, after she she told that story about her father and and the way Din responded. Um, I think that's when it st started shifting for her. Catherine, what are your thoughts about about Bo's, um, I guess, observations of Din, and do you think that that sort of is contributing to a change of heart in her? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, Din's sincerity when he walked into the water. Definitely reminded me of um, actually an event that happened a year ago. I went to visit a friend of mine in England, and we were visiting uh, the Holy Island, Lindis, where the Lindisfarne Gospels are from. And we went into one of the churches that was once Catholic and is now just part of a museum. And we happened to be there at a time when it was time to say the Angelus. And there were some beautiful tapestries and things still from the old Catholic church. And we just stopped and was like, we're going to save the Angelus now. And we just said it with just much, you know, just real. And to see the reaction of people around us, it was as if all of a sudden the place meant something again. You know, it's not just a museum. This this is a holy place. That's why it's called Holy Island. So, and I've, I've been 
like I've said, in and out of churches that are, you know, part-time museums, sadly. But just to see the people that when something real happens there and it affects them, you know, like being being at mass in a major cathedral that during the week is sometimes a museum and there's having people interact with, oh, wait, there's actually mass happens here. So it, it, it does change you. It makes you stop and think that there's a deeper, real truth behind it all. It's not just show. Yeah. And let's talk about um, how Din and the others call these living waters. Um, that's, I mean, actually really ancient religious language <laughs> um, that is used in real life. And um, I know in Judaism, uh the ritual baths are called mikvahs and those are referred to as living waters um, that a person would participate in and still, you know, Orthodox um, and, and other, you know, sects of Judaism continue this, this practice of um, associating blessings and renewal and newness of life with, um, going into submersing into a mikvah, the living waters. Um, and, and it allows them to, again, participate in communal life and in the temple worship, you know, it back when the temple existed. And, um, of course I know as Christians, we probably saw, um, that as, um, the baptismal, um, font and early in the early Christian church, you know, um, and still today in, in many Christian churches, there is a full immersion, um, that people actually go down steps just like Din did in, in the episode, um, into the waters like that. Um, and, uh, I was thinking specifically when you go to the Holy Land in Nazareth, there is a church, um, where basically where the Holy Family lived, where their house was. And it, um, as Christianity developed, the Christians built a baptismal font there at their house um, in Nazareth. And it has those steps going down like that. And and each step was supposed to sort of represent um, a moment in your journey to um, your new life in Christ. So um, that's full of, of symbolism as well. Um, and I know, Andrew, uh, you're from the Chaldean tradition and maybe a lot of folks who are listening, you know, they may not realize that there's all kinds of different Christian traditions. So I don't, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I guess the one thing I would add, I mean, the, the one thing um, Eastern Catholics uh, do is we do baptism and, and confirmation at the same time. Um, so, uh, when you're baptized, um, obviously usually as a, as a baby, um, you're, you're baptized and confirmed. And then when confirmation is, you know, the, the, the point of confirmation is that it's, it's sealing you with the gifts of the Holy spirit and, uh, it's, it's readying you to, to be of service to, uh, to the church, to the body of Christ. And, um, I think that's a totally <laughs> that's totally what's happening with Din. I mean, that's the the whole point of what he's doing is is not only you know being baptized, not only being cleansed of his of his sins, you know his his original sin, I guess, being of taking his mask off, but uh, being 
being confirmed, you know, he, he is affirming that he is going to, uh, give his life, uh, to, um, to the Mandalorian way. And, um, and you can see that, I mean, before he gets sucked down, (laughs) even when he's just talking about doing this, you can see it invigorates him. Like he, it, it is his purpose. It is what drives him. And, and, and he wants nothing more, um, than to, uh, um, you know, you know, just give his unending loyalty, um, uh, to the Mandalorian way and, uh, and to be, to be cleansed and, and, and to, uh, be, you know, that this is something that, uh, that motivation and that invigoration is sort of like the strength that he's getting from, you know, the quote unquote, uh, uh, Holy Spirit. Right. Um, uh, and, and, uh, I think that is is sort of a cool thing to look at it as both a baptism and a confirmation at at the same time, which is again, you know, something I can relate to being a Chaldean Catholic uh, and, and something that the Eastern Church does. But um, yeah, sort of like okay, I think I think Eastern Catholics, I think it's the best way to do it because you know you're just not two birds with one stone. <laughs> I've always looked at it like <laughs> well, um, two I... sacraments in one. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's cool to look at it that way. I think it's so cool that um, for us in the West, at least, or the Western tradition, this Sunday we um, had the gospel that actually specifically mentioned living water um, in the the encounter of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. And they're having this interreligious dialogue, almost like Din and Bokutan are having interreligious dialogue in a way. Um and talking about living waters and, and what Jesus says is that um, his water that he will give is is a living water that quenches all thirst. And so as you're talking about Din, you know, being confirmed to me, it's like, yeah, it's like he has constantly throughout the series had this thirst to be recognized as a true Mandalorian and to know what it is to be a true Mandalorian and finally to actually go to Mandalore into the living waters and profess the creed. I mean, that's just like, and then to do it with a Mandalorian princess and a mythosaur, like, I don't think you could really like go any further like Mandalorian than that. <laughs> and plus he has a dark saber. Does anyone think the mythosaur pulled him down? That's what I want to ask. So what did, what did you guys think? Why did he fall? Best car is pretty heavy. Uh, I, I thought he just, I thought there was just a cliff and he just fell down. <laughs> that mythosaur was not moving. <laughs> he barely rolled his eyes. He went down so hard and fast, though, she had to, like, jetpack it to keep up with him. Well, he took his jetpack off, so obviously he couldn't jetpack back up. So I think, because uh, I had the same thought, like, did something grab him? But I'm like, well, well with all that Beskar, if you're, if you've, if you're not walking, uh, if there's not, if there's no foundation and, you, and, and there's, like, it's deep waters, you're going straight to the bottom. I mean, it, it's, it's like tying yourself to a millstone, uh, you know, just going to the bottom. Um, that's, that's what I thought at least I, you know, by the time we saw the mythosaur, it looked like it was just sleeping and it barely woke up. So I don't think, I mean, may, I mean, I, there could be arguments for both, but that's, yeah. that was just the way I saw it. Watching it again, I did see stairs as she dove in. Yep. There were a lot more stairs going down. There was down. a lot of stairs under the water. And not to sound gross or anything, but I have seen ducks taken down by snapping turtles around here. So he looked like he was pulled under. 
But the mythosaur seemed pretty calm when she saw him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Did. Maybe it was like a religious experience that <laughs> happened. I mean, I don't know. But but I guess what we do know is that um, this whole experience of, you know, Bo encountering um, Grogu and Din and the mythosaur and seeing Din's faith and, and just having this whole experience. We know that she's gone through it and we can imagine that it's going to have some impact on her. So what do you think is going to change in Bo-Katan going forward? And what do you think is going to change for Din Djarin going forward? I think they've both been discovering the truths from both sides. It's like watching uh, an interfaith couple when they're, you know, developing in their relationship. You can be supportive of each other and look for that truth together. And then when you arrive at it together, you know, like you hear some great conversion stories of listening to couples talk about, yeah, well, I, I ventured toward the faith first and then, you know, he or she followed along and that relationship, that conversation of, you know, not pounding it over their head of you have to go with me because this is how it has to be versus, you know, okay, I see what you were raised with, what you've learned, you know, how does that tie in and work it toward and a real conversation, a real debate leads to truth and there's one truth. And so that's, I think that's what it is about. They have an open conversation and I hope it just keeps going. It could be great for Mandalore. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this, like uh, this whole idea, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very common, uh, you know, allegory, you know, going into the cave and then obviously the bathing in the living water is like, we, you know, we've talked about the, the whole baptism, uh, confirmation connections and, and, you know, a lot of times in stories and in movies, when you go into a cave and you come back out, you come back out a different person. Um, anything of like the allegory of the cave, like, like Plato's allegory where, where it's, you know, what you see inside of the cave, uh, you know, is your reality. Um, and no matter what's going on outside, obviously for Din, you know, what's going on inside the cave is his reality. And, and, it doesn't matter what Bo has told him or, or, you know, uh, what, what society thinks about, you know, what he believes in. He, he believes it so deeply. It's kind of like the, the allegory of the cave, like, you know, fl you know, turned on its head. It's like, he's been in this cave, you know, his, his whole life, basically. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I mean, he's in his own cave, like under his mask and, and, uh, you know, He's discovering, you know, he's discovering things about Bo-Katan inside the cave and, and discovering, uh, you know, Bo is kind of like his version, you know, his, his sort of like gateway to what's going on in the real world. And, and, uh, and for Bo, I mean, Din is, is showing her this, this new reality in this cave where, um, she thought she knew everything cause she, she, she's out in the real world and she's experienced, you know, all these sort of things. She, she. Uh, she was in the war and, and she, she knows, uh, firsthand what the consequences were. Um, so 
in that allegory, she, she, you would think like she knows what's going on. She's like the philosopher, you know, she's, she can think outside of the cave, but you know, here she goes into the cave and like everything she's believed in is sort of like, okay, what, <laughs> uh, mythosaur, you know, um, experiencing this whole, you know, the, from experiencing Din's, uh, creed and, uh, and all that, and then saving him and, and encountering the mythosaur, it's like, okay, what are we going to do now? So they're both coming out of this cave, different people. Um, and, um, uh, you know, obviously Din being reinvigorated and, and being, feeling like he's now done what he's needed to do to, uh, be redeemed. Um, and now Bo trying to figure out like, okay, we're, we're, where do the Mandalorians go from here? Where do I go from here? What's my place in this, this sort of, uh, this, this story? Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's cool to think of it that way, you know? Um, and obviously we saw a big spider. There's always spiders in a cave. So we had a, ro- <laughs> a robotic one. <laughs> yeah. So the, all the cave stuff was, was in this episode. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo gets caught, you know, trapped by a spider. You know, Din is is our Frodo in this case. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think exciting things to come. I think it 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 puts both characters in in sort of a new place. Um, I mean, for Din, we for a while we were like, okay, is he going to be loyal? Is he going to care? And then obviously we know he does, and and he followed through. And now with Bo, it's like, okay, how does she react to this? Mm-hmm. I think if if Din's gonna if Din's going to change and, and, you know, if they're going to meet in the middle, if, if Bo's going to find, you know, the reality of what it means to be a Mandalore through Din and he's going to see it through her and they kind of meet in the middle. I don't think that he's going to go along with it unless his, uh, the rest of his group, the rest of the, basically everybody that's underneath the, that follows or the covert underneath the armor. I don't think that unless they change, is he going to back off because he wants, he, he is part of that group and he wants to remain part of that group. You know, that's his family and, and that's his only sense of family. So I think that if they're going to meet in the middle, the other, the rest of the group needs to change too. But then I was also thinking, you know, back to, episode one when the armor says that he needs to bathe in living waters but he can't because everybody thinks it's destroyed he says okay if i bring proof that i did that i'm good right you know this is the way well what's his proof well now what if he flies back in on the mythosaur and he's riding the mythosaur back to the armor that's proof <laughs> take his confirmation sponsor Bo-Katan. Oh, yeah right <laughs> Well, I was wondering, speaking of confirmation sponsors, like if Bo-Katan was the proof, like if her testimony would be the proof, just initially at least, because we all know he's going to end up with the mythosaur in the end, right? But, (laughs) or she will, who knows? But, you know, let's say he's relying on her testimony, but then what if the children of the watch don't accept Bo-Katan's testimony because she's not worthy or she messed things up or whatever. She takes her mask off. That's enough for them. <laughs> right. And she, and she left the de- and she left death watch. 
Right. So what if they don't accept it? And then Din is like, but I did this. Um, He may have a crisis of faith and a fork in the road where he has to decide, do I still want to try to appease this group of people and their specific letter of the law type of lifestyle? Or do I know what happened to me? Do I know the reason that I took off my helmet, you know, the kind of the spirit of the law situation. So is he going to sort of um, try to unite people and be a bridge? Um, that's what I'm wondering and that I'm hoping for, um, for Din Djarin. One other thing about the whole, the watch. I mean, they, they're definitely not... Um, the group Bo-Katan was part of, I don't think. And then um, the other thing was, is in all of this, I remember watching in the first season, you know, little Din Djarin losing his parents and then being rescued. And yet he never seems to talk about them. Like he's completely lost his culture before becoming a Mandalore. And that's the only thing that I find odd about all of this is like anyone that they bring into the watch, especially the young foundlings, lose their past. And that's all they have is the watch. And it's just, I don't know, there's parts of that that's like, man, that kind of disturbs me. And anytime they bring up the word cult in reference to the watch, it makes you think about some scary cults that have been out there in history where... They purposely do that and distance kids from who they were. So it's like, that's always the one thing in the background there that just kind of is like a little, makes me uneasy sometimes. Well, there's another parallel in Star Wars. The Jedi do that. Right. But the Jedi stopped doing that because I think that was part of their downfall. They realized they were taking them too young. But Well, Luke definitely seemed to think that... And even Ahsoka, but she was sort of raised in that system. But, um, you know, Luke seemed to be more open, you know, to someone who isn't basically like a toddler, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's true. Um, Andrew, any other thoughts on that? Um, yeah, not on that specifically, but I mean, overall, I think we're... we're uh, we're seeing that you know in this episode uh it sets up like okay we're we're pretty sure this sort of conflict of um uh interests and beliefs uh between uh din and uh and bo uh is probably going to start a conflict between you know the watch and the other mandalorians out there that are you know the ones that see the watch as like these radical cult like um you know, people that, that, that they sort of put a lot of the blame on, um, for, uh, for the end of Mandalore and the, you know, and the other way around is like, oh, these, these, the, the watch looks at these other Mandalorians, you know, who sort of, uh, drifted away from the, the quote unquote creed and, and the way, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's not going away. Uh, and, and, yeah, whether it's uh, like you mentioned, Angela, it, it, if it's going to be a 
a case of where dead needs to unite. You know, usually when when even someone like Din who, you know, obviously he doesn't care. I mean, he's not aggressive towards Bo for being, you know, for, for having her mask off. And, you know, it, it doesn't like offend him, you know, uh, like it would some of the, you know, probably most of the other members of the watch. Um, so yeah, what's going to happen when, you know, they encounter each other, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to be pretty. And then, and I think it usually in, in these situations, we've seen far too much, there's going to be a war at first, you know, and then whoever's left um, on both sides have to figure it out from there. Um, is that what we're going to see? I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I you know, That's in some of the trailers. way. Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Fight it out. <laughs> exactly. Is it just going to be history repeating itself? Um, uh, I'm sure, th- I mean, my guess is that th- there's, there's going to be some of that, but obviously there's going to be a, a sort of evolution or a revolution uh, you know, with uh, Din leading the way. And um, yeah, I think there's going to be battles of faith for him um, and certainly for Bo. Uh, I mean, where does Grogu fit in all this? Like, uh, I mean, obviously he's loyal to Din. Uh, will Will Grogu start thinking for himself at some point? Um, who knows? I mean, we're obviously seeing Grogu uh, being able to I mean, we didn't talk about it enough. I mean, he can hold his own now. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, he's he's definitely wielding the force uh, uh, in a way that we haven't seen before, um, and he's and he's you know able to go on you know little mini missions uh, himself. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll we'll maybe Grogu's the one. I mean, obviously from episode one, there's a reason why uh, that that episode ended with the reveal of of his character. Um, so I'm sure Grogu will have, have a say or, or a pivotal role in, in how things shake out. Jason, what are your last thoughts here as we're wrapping up? Well, I did see a, a quick thing about Grogu on YouTube. Somebody was saying that they noticed up until the end of season two, I think even in a Book of Boba Fett, whenever Grogu would be talking, the captions would say cooing. And now it says babbling. So there, there's some advancement there from cooing to babbling. Uh, but I also thought it was interesting that uh, I never noticed in the seasons before that he had full control of his pod. You know, this time they clearly made it obvious that he had a little control box in there and he could turn the light on and he could go where he wanted to. He could stop when he wanted to. Before, the only thing I ever saw him do to it was close it that one time when he was about, there was about to be a fight. But I thought that was interesting and and it made me decide I want one. (laughs) If they could, you know, make one of those. A Jason-sized one. (laughs) Yeah. It'd have to be pretty big, but. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, what are your final thoughts here? All right. I have one more just funny off the wall thought. If the season was right now at this point in time to be taken over by the Hallmark Channel, (laughs) (laughs) you would have um, a storyline like this. Single father of adopted son rescued three times by a princess of a fallen kingdom. The child unites them as a family and they restore the kingdom. High Magistrate Griefkarga and the armorer lead the ceremony as 
<laughs> Din Djarin with his groomsmen, Boba, Marshall Cobb Vance, and uh, <laughs> one of the Vistla guys, <laughs> and Bo's bridesmaids, Ahsoka, Sabine, and Casca, all joined together with Grogu in his little pram riding up with the rings. And then uh, <laughs> ceremony, full armor. And as they say, you may kiss. Both helmets come off. Big kiss. The armorer says, this is the way. Grogu <laughs> brings up the uh, mythosaur, since he's so good at communicating with Rancor. So he could do that with a mythosaur. And they ride off into the sunset. <laughs> There's wow, my that's funny take. I would that. <laughs> then there needs to be an alternate like uh multiverse of of uh grogu and and mandalorian so definitely <laughs> would love to see that would not be mad at it um but it's funny because you you mentioned that grogu could tame the mythosaur and that's my that's part of my theories i i, I do think he's gonna end up having something to do with that potentially because he has, he seems to have that connection with animals or whatever you call it in star Wars. So maybe that's why tar could ride him because tar was a Jedi. Uh That's true. Yeah. And it seems like um, from rebels that um, you know, how Ezra could communicate with animals through the force that that must be like a force ability. So seems like Grogu has it. And just imagine um, that scale perspective. Oh my gosh. Oh, tiny Grogu <laughs> the giant with this sword. <laughs> well, uh let's let's wrap it up here. What do you all think about um this episode, Star Wars? What is your hallmark uh alternate storyline? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let us know what you caught, what you thought. Um send your feedback on any Star Wars related questions or comments to us, uh, you can email starwars at sqpn.com or you can find StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Leave a comment there or you can tweet us at sqpn. And be sure to share the podcast on social media as well. Um, subscribe, all those good things. We have um, Secrets of Star Wars on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, all the things. And you can find us at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. Um, we definitely want to take a moment to recognize and thank the people who make this podcast possible, our patrons, including Teresa M., Marcelo P., Bo B., uh, Mark R., and Brian B., and you too can help StarQuest continue our mission by becoming a patron at sqpn.com slash give. We also want to invite you to join us on Discord. If you're not on Discord, simply go to sqpn.com slash Discord and you can join our Discord server. We have a lot of Star Wars conversations there as well. We continue sort of the show and, and all of our conversation um, as the week goes on. So feel free to hop on there as well. And after listening to this episode, please rate and review our podcast if you haven't already to let us know how we're doing and also to help us get seen by more people who'd be interested in listening to the secrets of Star Wars. Next week, we will be back to discuss chapter 19 of The Mandalorian. Who knows where that's headed? Until next time, Jason Yuji, thank you for joining us in The Secrets of Star Wars. 
Thanks. It was a great discussion. I appreciated being part of it. Absolutely. And Catherine Laffrey as well. Thank you for being here. Thank you. This was so much fun. And of course, Mr. Mudhorn, Andrew Hermes. Great to have you with us again, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Once again, I'm Angela Ciolana, the Bendu. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Wars on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash stargate.